Our scripture for today is John 18, 12 through 40. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First, they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl, who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, "'You also are not one of the man's disciples, are you?' He said, "'I am not.' Now the servants and the officers had made a charcoal fire, because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself." The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it, and at once a rooster crowed. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken, to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting, that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told him, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? 
they cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, everybody. My name is Dusty White. I'm a pastor in Omaha, Nebraska. And I feel like I should have some sort of Nebraska-Iowa joke. But based on football records, I'm going to go ahead and not have any Iowa-Nebraska jokes, okay? We'll save those for another year, maybe. Hey, really glad to be here. We have been rooting for you. Uh, We have been praying for you. And it is so great to actually be here. Uh, When we were driving up and we saw the truck and the trailer, it reminded us of our good old days. And so there's something really great about the grit and the grace of church planting. And there's something really great about the stories that God is writing right now. So um, I'm a pastor over in Omaha at Quorumdale Church. Uh, brought a couple friends with me. My son Landon, he's our oldest of six kids. He's here, Gary and Tyrone. Uh, they too are aware of Sacred Mission and have been praying for you. We've prayed for you on Sundays. We've prayed for you in elder meetings. And we are just grateful that you would have us today. Hey, that's a long scripture reading. She should get a record. We're going to go back through some of that scripture, not all of it, but I want, I want us to get caught up in what's going on there. And I should say right away that I'm indebted to the works of N.T. Wright and William Hendrickson as I prepared this sermon to be with you today. We pick up the story with a settled, confident, poised disposition, Savior, Jesus, in John chapter 18, starting in verse 12. Jesus has a bitter cup to drink, and he's going to drink it, but not without a lot of other bitter things happening along the way, and that's what we're going to talk about here today. That's why I'm here, to talk about the things that are happening all the way up to the crucifixion. I think we're prone to jump to the crucifixion, which is obviously the most important event and symbol of our faith. It's It is important to the disciple John, though, for us to know about all the things that are also leading up to it. And so he gives us an entire chapter about what is happening. The setting is the garden. And like all of us, a group of people are looking for God. When we're lost, we don't even know that we're looking for God. So we're caught up in all sorts of mischief, we're caught up in all sorts of temporary fixes, things to numb our pain. This group of people is looking for God, and they don't even know it. Also, hey, I just want to mention, if that's you today, this is the right place to be. This is a church that will welcome you right where you're at. You don't have to fake it until you make it here. This is a place that will welcome you just as you are, and not leave you there, but offer you the gospel of hope. So if that's you, you might be here looking for God and not even know it. That's what's happening in John 18. These guys are looking for God and they don't even know it. The garden is the normal spot to meet up. That's where they always met up. It's a familiar refuge to them. That's where Jesus was at home. He was at home. He was kind of at ease in this garden. And it's not the first time that we see a garden. There's a garden at the beginning where Adam and Eve, where we meet our first Parents, there's a garden here in John 18, and in due time, in just a couple of weeks, I imagine, 
you're going to turn the page to John chapter 20 where you see a new garden. And in that garden scene, the light will shine in the darkness and the darkness is not going to overcome it. And here in this garden scene, the light is going to shine in the darkness and the darkness is not going to overcome it, even though it's nighttime. So, even though the garden is a familiar spot for Jesus to let down with the other disciples, and even though this type of tension and especially these types of trials that are about to happen are supposed to happen at any other time other than at night, it's illegal actually, this is where we find ourselves. Even though, even though, here we are, John 18. Judas betrays Jesus. He cowardly shows up with a bunch of hoodlums. This band of soldiers and the temple police take him and bind him. It's actually a pretty normal arrest. But from this point forward, things will get physical. The physical elements will not let up. So they cuff him. They bring him to Annas for a preliminary trial. Though Annas isn't the high priest anymore, he's the father-in-law to the high priest, and he's still a dominant member of the Jewish hierarchical machine. He's kind of like that farmer that you wish you could avoid, but because he's got really good crops, really good land, you can't really argue your way around him. He's that guy. He's around. He's just always around. It's a preliminary trial of sorts because eventually the high priest, Caiaphas, has to call the shots legally. Caiaphas has been plotting Christ's death for a while some scholars think that all of this moving around in John 18 is simply because it's late at night and they had to wake up some people to gather the size of crowd that they needed to later gather outside of Pilate's place, which is where we'll end up. Then John wants us to realize that in the middle of the tension rising, there's also some other characters around. A couple disciples. Peter's one of them. John is one of them. Peter is always scrappy. He's always ready to defend Jesus. He's always out front. He's that guy. He's always out front. He prides himself in being Jesus' bodyguard, even though we never see Jesus asking Peter to be his bodyguard. Peter's Jesus' bodyguard. The other disciple, who's most likely John, goes in with Jesus, but Peter stays outside and he hangs out by the fire because it's cold. There's a servant girl by the door, and she notices that Peter doesn't seem to be comfortable. He's probably a little squirrely. Peter paces around, probably. I'm assuming a bunch of things here based on the scriptures and what we learn of the guy. He doesn't seem like a guy who can hide his emotions very well. So she says, hey, are you with him? She's expecting him to say yes, because it's pretty obvious she probably asks in a pretty cunning tone. It was an easy answer. All Peter had to do was say yes. And he says, like Jesus said he would say, I am not. He lies. He's out front until he's in the back. When the pressure mounts, he goes from being the first to defend to being the first to deny. Okay. Then John gives us a scene change in chapter 18. Now we march across the courtyard. John wants us to notice that while Peter is outside denying Jesus, Jesus is inside telling the truth. Don't miss that. 
Peter's denying Jesus is telling the truth. Because the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness shall not overcome it. The suffering is real. He's been betrayed. He's been bound. Peter has denied him. And now he's beginning a trial, a makeshift trial. But even though this trial is illegal on a lot of technical grounds, Jesus stays real steady. And he speaks real honestly and real truthfully. In case you're wondering about the illegalities, for a few reasons, here's some of them. Jesus was tried and condemned somewhere between, scholars think, midnight to 3 a.m., I don't know about you, but my grandma told me that nothing good happens after midnight. I think that's the case in the scriptures as well. Seems like a biblical idea. Parents, you can keep using that. Jesus is, con- is tried and condemned somewhere between midnight and 3 a.m. Not only do things not good happen after midnight, no trial for life was allowed at night. That was just the law. The entire arrest, secondly, the entire arrest of Jesus came about because of a bribe and blood money that Judas had received. And that's not allowed. He wasn't even arrested for anything that he actually had legitimately done. Third, Jesus was alone. And he was being asked in this moment to incriminate himself. Fourth, when it came to capital punishment... Jewish law didn't permit the sentence to be pronounced until the day after the accused party had been convicted. So not only is this thing a farce because Jesus had done nothing wrong at all, it was a mistrial and it was illegal on a lot of different fronts. Those are just a few. But envy, power, and control, these would keep the plot going. This isn't a trial. This is murder. They turn up the heat on Jesus in verses 19 through 24. Check it out if you have the scriptures in front of you. The high priest questions him. He answers. But Jesus is not going to give him his resume. He's also not going to tell him where to find all of his followers. Peter and John will get there someday. But Jesus is not going to snitch. Peter and John are going to get theirs. But Jesus is not going to let it happen faster than it needs to. So he responds in truth. But an officer slaps him. Again, trying to flex power. Jesus says, hey, if I'm wrong, I'm wrong. But if I'm right, I'm right. Why do things have to get physical? And the physical tension continues to rise. This slap on Jesus' face was just the beginning of what they would later do to your Savior. The trial and the tension continues, but then John takes us back to the barrel fire, okay? So John 18, scene change. Now we're back at the fire pit. It's still cold, and Peter... He's warming himself because that's what we do, right? When it's warm or when it's cold. By now, as time has passed, even though it's dark out, people are really starting to get curious about this Peter guy. He's fidgety. He's pacing. 
I didn't mention this because it was the scripture from last week that you had. <clears throat> but remember, when Peter pulled out his conceal and carry sword and cut the guy's ear off, there's a guy by the fire pit who happens to be probably that guy's cousin. These are the things that I think about when I'm reading the scriptures and studying. I'm like, did, when, it, when the scriptures say Peter takes out his sword and cuts the guy's ear off, do you think like I think like he was probably going for his head and the guy ducked? Like what happened here? Or he was just like, I'm going to just show him how handy I am with the steel and just just quick get his ear. I don't know. These are the things that I'm wondering. Either way, the guy who gets his ear cut, that guy has some relatives and they were there for the ear thing. And when the flame of the fire just seems to just be bright enough, flicker rightly, one of the guys recognizes Peter and he says, hey, aren't you the guy that cut my cousin's ear off? Peter dodges again. Nope. Jesus is on trial and only telling the truth. Peter's standing by the fire. He's keeping warm and he's doing his best to hide. And we do our best to hide, don't we? He's so loyal because he's there. But when it really matters, he's disloyal. Do you have any, uh, do you have any triggering smells for, you, for yourself? There's just certain smells that when you smell certain things, you're just triggered or taken back to a certain memory. Like when you smell pipe tobacco, does that take you back to maybe your grandfather? Or if you catch a whiff of a funnel cake, you immediately think, about the Iowa State Fair. Uh, I have some unfortunate triggering smells around radiator fluid. Uh, I had two bad encounters with radiator fluid. One with a diesel bus that exploded on me, sent me to the ER. The other was with this uh, really old Ford uh, van that I convinced my wife was a really wise purchase. And financially, it did work out in the end, okay? Uh, but it was a bad idea. And that radiator also exploded on me uh, on a trip. So radiator fluid for me will never be quite the same. Whenever I smell hot radiator fluid, I go to a dark place. I think the same is true of Peter in this moment. I think Peter and charcoal fire pits signify denial. I think that's the case in the scriptures here. They aren't warm anymore. For Peter... Things get cold when he smells a charcoal fire. All right, scene change. Now we're back to the trial. He's been before Annas. He's been before Caiaphas. Now it thickens with Pilate. He gets moved on from Jewish leaders to the civic leaders. Again, one of the sole purposes in all of the conversations was to gain some crowd momentum. They need a crowd, and they also need Pilate. They can't kill Jesus Pilate has to. So they bring him to Pilate. He's a bit confused. But Pilate is Pilate, so he's really happy to be in power in this moment. Pontius Pilate is a real person. He's a real governor of Judea from A.D. 26 to A.D. 36. Jesus has a handful of followers, but before Pilate, he was alone. On the cross, he's alone. The mention of Pilate in the Apostles' Creed, which you probably recite here every now and then, 
might seem a little bit odd at first, but it highlights Christ's suffering as a historical event. It's important for you to know that Christians are not worshiping a Savior who's made up like a fairy tale that happened a long, long, long ago. We're worshiping a Savior who had an address, and he suffered in a specific time, in a specific place, under a governor named Pontius Pilate. Pilate is a real guy. Pilate is real. He's as real as Barack Obama or Donald Trump or Joe Biden. Pilate is a real governor. If Mary is the innocent virgin mother, Pilate is the ruler who enters the Apostles' Creed like a dog into a really nice room, says Karl Barth. And he's also going to use this opportunity to cut at the Jews because he hates them. But we get the sense from the scriptures that he's also somewhat kind of afraid of them. They're deep and he's pretty shallow. They demonstrate some maturity and some dedication. Pilate, insecure, but flashy. They want him dead. Pilate has the power to execute. They do not. In fact, he doesn't even realize that they want him dead until he comes back out and he says, hey, you guys deal with this guy according to your own rules. And then they say, but we don't have the power to execute. Then Pilate realizes that his power has him a little bit in a pickle. But again, it's Pilate and he kind of likes that power because he's the kind of politician that is only in politics and in governance for the power not the people. So crowds are like candy and energy drinks to Pilate. Pleasing the crowd really matters to him. So the pressure on Pilate is growing. Also, keep in mind that while Jesus, this is important, while Jesus is being prepared before Pilate, so also are the lambs for Passover. Quite literally, Lambs are being butchered, and they are being brought into the temple for sacrifice. Friends, that means that the stench of death is in the temple air. File that for later. Later on in John. The tension keeps rising. Pilate doesn't want to touch this case because it's Passover, but the chief priests are demanding that Jesus die. So Pilate most likely unsure, and biting his bottom lip, has to do something. The man before him is literally the man that must die for the sins of the entire world, but Pilate can't see any of that light. He can't see any of that truth in his own interactions with Jesus. He asks Jesus more questions. Jesus answers him. Pilate is discovering firsthand, as many have, that every time you ask Jesus a question, his answer is another question. That's what happens. But one of his answers is grace. Catch this. Look at verse 37. One of the answers that Jesus gives is actually an invitation. He says in verse 37, I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. It's almost as if, in verse 37, Jesus gives Pilate an out. He isn't trying to be noncommittal, because remember, 
at the beginning of chapter 18, Jesus knows everything that is about to unfold, the scriptures tell us. He has a bitter cup to drink, and he will drink it. But in this moment, he gives cynical, cowardly Pilate an invite. Jesus says, hey, Pilate, if you come to your senses amidst all of this political confusion that you're in, you too can hear the voice of truth. Truth is standing right in front of him. The savior of the world, right in front of him. But Pilate, with his snarky, cynical voice, responds, what is truth? You see, to be a crooked leader, you have to start shutting down your conscience. It's easier to be snarky and cynical than to be honest and true. And if you get too jaded, too cynical, you can't even see the truth, or you don't want to see the truth. Pilate can only see things from his worldly perspective. He spent his life figuring out how to advance his politics, how to advance his military truth. That he thinks you get truth from the sword. It's political truth against the next campaign. My truth against your truth. My sword against your sword. And ultimately, for Pilate, all he can see from the Roman perspective is my truth against your truth and my power against your weakness. Ultimately, what Pilate sees is my cross and your body. That's what it comes down to for Pilate. Pilate goes in. Pilate goes out. He's pacing. Peter was pacing. Now he's pacing. The crowd is growing. What will he do? So he goes back out. He has another opportunity to get Jesus's almost an impending blood off of his hands. And he kind of wants to, is what the scriptures tell us, because the Jews have a Passover custom. He steps out onto his porch, and by now the crowd is insane. Verse 39, back out on his porch, check out verse 39. Hey Jews, as much as I like to get rid of you guys, this guy doesn't seem to be guilty. But remember, you have a custom at Passover that I can release a prisoner for you. So do you want me to release this Jesus guy? This too is a moment of suffering for your Savior. Because even though Pilate cannot find any fault, he is willing to release Jesus, which implies that he is guilty. But he still isn't. John, at this point, introduces us to yet another character, Barabbas. He was, actually, an insurrectionist. He was a robber. He was a murderer. And the crowd says, hey, keep Jesus, keep Jesus' blood on your hands and release to us Barabbas instead. They had to be yelling this a lot and loudly. And Pilate has to do what the crowd wants him to do. Jesus, the truth, stands there steady. He stands there alone and prepares for the death that someone like Barabbas with actual crimes deserved in this moment. Pilate didn't see it. Annas didn't see it. Caiaphas didn't see it. The Jews don't even see it. Peter barely 
understands half the time. And today, John invites us to see it. John is saying to us, do you understand what this suffering means? Come and behold the Lamb of God. This is what the cross will mean. This is what truth is. This is what truth does. Jesus is the truth. And he's about to die for Barabbas, for them, and for us. Okay, I don't know how much time you got, but all of that was my introduction to John 18. I'm kidding. I have a few things by way of application, and then I'll take my seat. First of all, here's a few thoughts. Jesus is betrayed. Jesus is bound. Jesus is denied. And Jesus is alone. These are the things that I want you to think about for just a moment. And then I want you to ask, out of this entire narrative, why did it have to be this way? Why did it have to actually go this way? Here's N.T. Wright as he writes on this passage. I don't know that any of us will ever be able to hold all this in our minds at any one time. John allows the images to build up, one upon another upon another, until we're overwhelmed by them. That's part of the point. You can no more read this story at one level only, a simple arrest and a trial, than you can plant a garden in a coffee shop. The only way forward is to allow all the different ideas and levels, the clashes of meaning and misunderstanding, to echo around until they produce prayer, awe, silence, and love. Why did it have to be this way? Why did God, who could have done it anyway, set it up this way? If he needed to save us from sin and from ourselves, why did it take a mistrial in the middle of the night? Why did one of his closest disciples have to trade in his loyalty to just stand by the fire pit? Why did all of this have to happen? Well, friends, first of all, let's not miss the steadiness of Jesus. Jesus was steady so that you could have courage. Notice the entire time, throughout the entire narrative, the steadiness of Jesus. Reaching all the way back to the beginning of the chapter, when we first get to the garden, they come looking for Jesus, and what does he do? He steps forward, and he says, hey, you're looking for me. That's courageous. The steadiness of your Savior is remarkable. It doesn't take much for me to start sweating. It doesn't take much for me to get nervous. Lots of people, lots of, I should say, acquaintances around me will say in certain situations, man, you seemed really calm back there. But if you were to ask my close friends and my wife, they would know better. Because I can be calm on the exterior and inside my heart is just pounding. In crisis situations or nervous situations, I serve in Omaha as one of our police chaplains. And those are never fun situations to be in but they require a certain steadiness. And then after those scenes, I need, I need a few hours to actually regather. In this moment, Jesus is steady. 
John wants us to see the steadiness of Christ. And I think it's because he wants us to have courage. Submitting your life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ in 2022 is a courageous move. You need Jesus and his steadiness in that moment, and he grants you the courage. We live in a culture, even in small town Iowa, that says you can be whatever you want, you can be whoever you want. So standing with Christ, who he is, what he has done, and what he will do, is a courageous and bold move. And friends, your towns need the gospel and hope of Christ. So Jesus has to be steady so that you can have courage. You need courage, and because of Christ, you can actually have courage. Jesus is betrayed so that you can belong. Back at the very beginning of the entire garden scene, Judas comes with an entourage of tough guys. Jesus isn't surprised that Judas betrays him, but he does. Jesus steps forward with courage into betrayal, but he is betrayed because you need a place to belong. I don't care how tough you think you are. You need a place to belong. We spend our entire lives looking for a place to belong. From the time that we come forth from the womb, our little infant eyes are darting around looking to connect. The first place that we belong is hopefully with a family that will love us. Sometimes that's not the case. We're either an unplanned annoyance or we're received with a sense of belonging. But either way, we must belong. Before we can talk, when we're still in diapers, we need to belong. So our eyes are hopefully met by a loving mom or a loving dad that pacify this need to belong early on. And I know that that doesn't always happen. Some of us are looking to belong early on because our home life is actually disheveled and a mess and full of addiction and we feel everything but belonging and this is an invitation to you john 18 is an invitation for you to belong because jesus is betrayed so that you could belong and then we grow up asking who we are and what we're good at what we're bad at vocation becomes this place of a lottery of belonging but either way, we come hardwired to belong. And so, Jesus is betrayed so that you could belong. We're longing to belong. Galatians tells us that we can be adopted into God's family if we'll just worship him. You can belong to God. That's wild. Think about that. You can belong to God. Jesus is also bound so that you could be free. He's bound so that you could be free. They show up in the garden and they arrest Jesus so that you and I can be free from our sins and our vices. Galatians 5.1 tells us that for freedom, Christ has set us free. If he was not bound, if he was not arrested, if there wasn't a mistrial and ultimately the cross then we wouldn't be free. We'd still be bound. But Jesus Christ steps forward. He takes your cuffs for you. I learned earlier this morning when I first got here that in kids' church, they're going to be using handcuffs to, de to describe John 18. That's true. Jesus steps forward. He takes your cuffs for you. He takes your charges. You show up guilty, 
as charged. Jesus shows up innocent, and he shifts all of that from you to him. While we were still sinning, Christ died for us. He justifies you. Arrested, bound, so that you could go free on the charges that you deserve. Jesus also was denied. He was denied so that you could be accepted. Accepted and belonging are kind of like roommates, but acceptance is the roommate that secures the belonging even when you blow it. We need the gospel to get started with God, and we need the gospel on Monday morning as well. We need it every day because the more I learn about God's holiness, the more I'm confronted with my own sinfulness, and I need to know every single moment of every single day that God still accepts me, even when I blow it, because I'm going to blow it. Jesus is alone so that we can be together. Imagine doing all of that, all that John 18 narrative, alone. Jesus is alone so that we can be together, so that we can be here. This is remarkable. I mean, think about this. Out of all the towns in this area, 40-mile radius maybe, right? We're gathering here. Why are we doing that? Because we need to, because we need hope, and we need courage, and we need a place of belonging. And so God says, hey, I know it's been a long time. I know that it's been like since 1919, since anybody tried to plant a church there. But let's try that, because we need to be together. And that's why we gather every single Sunday. That's why there's a discipline of getting together and doing it over and over and over again. We do it to be together. Jesus was alone so that we could do it. John and Peter are around, but when it comes to this type of mistreatment, Jesus was alone. Listen to this from Ben Myers. We all respond differently to Jesus' story, but the story itself does not change. The same Jesus born of Mary and condemned by Pilate, is always at the center. All the church's practices and institutions are ultimately attempts to respond to that person. All the mysteries of faith are rooted in the events of history. That is why one of history's villains, Pontius Pilate, lives in the memory of the church and will be confessed until the end of the world whenever a person is baptized into the way of Jesus. Before Pilate, Jesus is alone. We need one another. Jesus dies for the church. The church is us, and we need one another. Us is a together people, a people united, a people stronger together, a people that serves, a people that can forgive, a people that can advocate for one another, a people that holds out hope and carries each other's burdens, because we can't do it alone. You can try to be a lone ranger. You're just not going to get very far. And Jesus sets up the church so that we're not alone. But later on, not in John 18, but later on, Jesus will hang there alone so that we can stay together and be together. Well, 
Jesus is betrayed so that you can belong. He's bound so that you could be free. He's denied so that you could be accepted. He's alone so that we could be together. All the while, what do we do with this Peter guy? Well, Peter gives me a lot of hope. Because we know the whole story. So we can look at Peter and go, Peter, what are you thinking, man? But later on, Jesus builds his church upon Peter. In just a couple of chapters, you're going to see the rubber meet the road with Peter. And Peter is going to have courage. Peter, even though he's denied Jesus, is going to be this courageous church leader that we all needed. Peter gives me a lot of hope. He bails, but later on in chapter 21, Jesus looks at him and he says, Hey, feed my sheep, which means... Build the church. Plant churches where nobody wants to go. So, us is we. Them is we. What do you make of Peter? Peter is you. So, would you join me as we pray that this narrative of John 18 would just sink into us and change us. And then we'll come to the communion table. Lord, I, it's so, so great to be here, and I'm blessed to be here, and I'm blessed by these people here. But at the same time, I can't think about all the other towns, all these outliers that aren't in this gymnasium right now. Would you continue to put forward the narrative of John 18, the narrative of Easter, the narrative of the cross to bring your people to their humility and ultimately to worship you? Let sinners, let saints come together here. Would you grow this church, not so that sacred mission can be like that church that just grows, but so that people can understand and cling to the gospel of hope? That's what we need. And there's empty chairs here today. So we pray that you would give us the courage, that you would root us in our acceptance, that you would root us in our belonging so that we could hold out the gospel of hope to a dark, addicted culture that is lost and dying without the hope of the gospel. We need this narrative, and we need it to sink deeper into our bones not just our heads. Would it compel us for the week forward? In your name, amen. Well, friends, Jesus Christ invites us to his table, the communion table. So let all sinners who are grieved and humbled by their sin, let all the weak who need their faith to be strengthened, let all who love the triune God yet wish to love him more come to the Lord's table. The scriptures tell us that on the night that he was betrayed, our Lord took bread and he broke it and said to his disciples, this is my body which is given for you. He then took a cup and said, this is the new covenant of my blood. Drink of it, all of you, in remembrance of me. So all who come to the Lord's table should come in humility and self-examination, because these are holy elements for a holy people. 
If you're a Christian, you should partake. If you're not a Christian, you do not need to feel the pressure to have to partake. You can let the people around you just pass by. But for all who humbly hope in the Lord Jesus Christ, be assured that your sins and your vices should not keep you from this table. Jesus Christ welcomes his people to come and find strength and to find healing in him. So, in a moment, you'll come and receive the elements, you'll return to your seat, and then I'll direct us in a moment as we partake together.